Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stendhal Syndrome There's a lot of things I've called myself in my life. I've lived in more cities, held more jobs, than I can usually even recall. The last thing I want to do is evoke the tired old trope of singing away like Johnny Cash when he proclaims that he's been everywhere, man. Like most of you, I'm scarcely fooled by the dunce who claims to have seen it all. But my existence has been an eventful one. And within the kaleidoscope of experiences I've had, a single month of my life stands out like a full moon shining in a deep black sky. At the time, I called myself a journalist. It was the first and only job I held with that title. Never again after that month would I feel moved to document other people's stories. Instead, I tried my best to avoid them. My time as a journalist was spent at a hardly reliable web publication called The Ruse. The Ruse was focused on exposing hoaxes and debunking outlandish claims. They hired me because their editor had apparently gotten a kick out of a comical piece I wrote about Hayem Eshed, the former Israeli defense chief who claimed that aliens were real and that their actions were monitored by a galactic federation. The ruse was located in upstate New York and comprised a skeleton crew staff. There were only two full-time employees when I showed up. As they told me, there used to be three, but one of their writers had gone missing on a road trip in Utah. Apparently, I was to be his replacement. For my first assignment, I was to cover a strange art exhibition and the alleged effect it had on the members of the small crowd that attended it. It all started when we received a letter from a man named Melvin Orweck. Orweck documented his own demise after visiting an avant-garde art installation. He said the art on display was the work of someone named Brother Simon, and that it took place at an obscure gallery called the Breathing Chamber. In his letter, Orweck wrote, I first heard about the breathing chamber from a drunk old man at a slummy house party in Long Island. I can't remember who the man was or what his relation was to any of the people at the party. But I remember him telling me in a near whisper that he had been to the breathing chamber and that it had changed him. Two weeks later, I was in the bathroom at poor Tony's Books. Wedged in the back of the magazine rack was a flyer for an upcoming exhibition at the breathing chamber. I was suddenly reminded of the old man at the party, the sound of his voice, 
The look in his eye when he told me that the breathing chamber had changed him. I became instantly curious. On the back of the flyer was an address in Melville, New York. I decided right then and there that I would go. When he went to the gallery, Orweck was accompanied by three of his friends. Their names, for some reason, were not included in the letter. Upon arrival, Orweck claimed that the breathing chamber appeared to be nothing more than an abandoned warehouse. He even wrote that he double-checked the address, initially thinking he had come to the wrong place. He was also dismayed at the fact that he and his friends seemed to be the only people there. There were no cars parked outside, no crowds, nobody taking tickets at the door. Still, they decided to head inside. Of the interior of the breathing chamber, Orweck offered few details. He said that the space was cold and damp, mostly empty, but that upon entering, they were quickly made certain that they had found what they were looking for, for better or for worse. The work confronted us immediately, Orweck wrote, though I'm not sure exactly what to call it. It wasn't collage, and it wasn't exactly moving sculpture either but it had elements of both. It seemed to display simultaneously in three-dimensional and two-dimensional space. It was sometimes flat against the wall, and sometimes protruding out in every direction, so close you were scared it would touch you. It was at once monochrome and colorful, pulsing and glowing in combinations of colors that I didn't think my eyes were even capable of picking up on. Looking at it made me feel like my vision itself was breaking down. Like what I was seeing and what existed in the real world had become two different things. But I didn't just see it, either. As I watched whatever it was move through the room and compress against the wall, I could also feel its movements inside my body, deep in the canals of my ears. A twitching. A kind of slithering. I don't know how long we stood in that warehouse, that place that felt suffocatingly small and unapproachably vast at the same time, that place that made us feel like we were inside of something, something that was alive, something that was breathing. I looked around at my friends, but they were hard to keep track of. They sometimes seemed to meld together, grouping into a single unrecognizable figure. At other times, there was too many of them. Or, at least, there were faces among them that I didn't recognize. Eventually, Orweck and his friends carried themselves out of the warehouse. He couldn't recall how he'd gotten home from the breathing chamber, and what came after that wasn't very cohesive either. As he documented the following few days of his life, Orweck's writing became scattered and hard to follow. Reading it was like watching someone disintegrate before my eyes. The letters began to lose their structure. The lines started to swerve and drop off at jagged angles. But within that roiling mass of text, there were passages that could be made out. One such passage reads, Feel it. Can feel it right next to me. Sometimes I can see it. Sometimes I can't. But I still know it's there. I still, illegible, watching me, always watching me.
When I first encountered the letter, I didn't know whether to be skeptical or terrified of it. And, as well as not knowing how to feel about it, I didn't know what the hell to do with it. But I didn't want to give my new employer the impression that I was lazy, though I was. So, I began researching it in earnest. The first thing I set out to do was verify the identity of the letter writer. Who was Melvin Orweck? And had he really lost his mind after witnessing the art of Brother Simon? Or was he full of shit? Orweck hadn't included a return address in his letter, which made it seem like he was being deliberately elusive. Like he didn't really want me to find him. Like he knew I would see his testimony for what it really was. A made-up story. But I was able to determine that the letter had been mailed from Suffolk County in Long Island. Also in Suffolk County was the town of Melville, the alleged location of the breathing chamber. It was enough to give me pause, but I was still skeptical of Orweck's story. It wasn't until I'd begun combing through Suffolk County's public records that my skepticism began to fade. In 1968, a couple named Francis and Charlotte Orweck had given birth to a son. They had named him Melvin. He'd attended public school in West Hampstead, and later worked at a bar in Jericho. And then, according to an obituary published only two days before, he had died of an apparent heart attack at the age of 52. As far as I could determine, his death had come only hours after he'd mailed the letter. I sat back in my chair, listened to the rain as it fell from the deep gray sky above. I looked out the window and watched the fog roll in over Lake Champlain. It bellowed in pockets around the shore, mapping out a dense cover that hung above the rippling water. I thought about the ways that our world can hide things, obscure them from view. A subtle shudder crept down my neck and descended along my spine. Reaching for my phone, I dialed the hospital where the mysterious Melvin Orweck had passed away. After sitting on hold for a few minutes, they told me that they could share no details of his death without the consent of his family. I scoured social media for Orweck's friends and family members, desperately searching for someone who could tell me, no, no, there was nothing strange about his death, he had simply suffered from a heart condition, it was tragic but mundane, but no such validation would come. No trace of Orweck, or anyone that claimed to know him, could be found online. So I decided to pivot. I began to look instead for the breathing chamber. But I could find no mention of that either. Returning to the letter, I recalled that Orweck claimed he had gotten the address of the breathing chamber from a flyer he had found at a bookshop called Poor Tony's. Online, I discovered that there was indeed a bookshop called Poor Tony's, and that they had a location in Queens. Without much consideration, I zipped up my rain jacket and headed out to my car. As I drove south, I found myself hoping, praying almost, that I wouldn't be able to find the location of the breathing chamber. No, I didn't merely hope that I wouldn't find it. I hoped that it didn't exist at all. Because Melvin Orweck did exist. And if the breathing chamber existed as well, then something might have really taken place there. And that was a reality I wasn't prepared to accept. When I arrived in New York City, 
The sun had set, and poor Tony's was closed. Thankfully, I had a friend that lived in Flatbush who agreed to put me up for the night. We stayed up late, sitting at his kitchen table, passing a joint back and forth. When he asked why I'd come to the city, I kept my answer vague. I feared that if I admitted to him what I was looking for, I might actually find it. In the morning, I set off for the bookshop. The rain had ceased, but the sky was still a flat gray canvas. The fog had lifted, but only so much. It still cloaked the edges of everything on the horizon. The bookshop was dim and cold and mostly empty. It smelled vaguely like rot and wet lacquer. I remember thinking the smell odd, because usually bookshops share a vaguely common smell. It's a smell of leather, of dust and ink. But the smell in poor Tony's was different. It smelled alien in a way that I couldn't fully diagnose. I browsed a section labeled Art and Esotericism. My fingers picked at titles that said things like Liminal Space and Spirit Communication and Fortean Critique and Rust Cycle. But I couldn't find anything that mentioned the Breathing Chamber or anyone named Brother Simon. So I decided to look in the spot where Orwek had looked, the magazine rack in the bathroom. There, behind a slim volume of poetry called the Liber Exidium, was a stack of postcard-sized flyers. They were freshly printed and neatly cut on thick white cardstock. On the front of each card were the words, See the latest occurrence of Brother Simon. And then on the back, The 7th of October at the Breathing Chamber, 1430 Dom Platz, Melville, New York. I was at first stricken by the way the cards were presented. They were in a neat, even stack, as if they had just been placed there a moment before. I picked one of them up and studied it. I was taken by the way the message was worded. See the latest occurrence of Brother Simon. Why was it phrased like that? An art exhibition is an organized event. An occurrence is something that just happens. The flyer made Brother Simon sound like something inexplicable. Something that happens without reason and comes out of nowhere. Melvin Orweck hadn't divulged the date of his visit to the breathing chamber, but the flyer said October 7th, which would have fit into Orweck's timeline of events. Even though more than a week had passed since then, I decided, against my better judgment, to go to the breathing chamber and see it for myself. Melville was a rather affluent area and far more suburban than I'd pictured it. Multi-story colonial homes dotted the streets. Most featured sprawling gardens that were beginning to wither and turn brown in anticipation of winter. There were few business complexes in the area, and even fewer abandoned warehouses. I tried to imagine the breathing chamber as Orwek had described it in his letter, but I couldn't picture it existing in that place. Everything was clean and fresh and well-kept. But then I turned my car onto Dom Platz, and all of that changed. The street was empty, lined only with the figures of bending trees, and at the end of it stood a large, imposing warehouse, a precipice of disintegration. 
It was partially hidden among the foliage. The paint on its rust-colored walls was cracked and peeling. All the windows were shattered, giving way to the dark rooms that stood behind them. There was no sign to indicate what kind of business had once occupied the building, only the fading address placard that hung above the front door. 1430, the numbers said. I parked my car in the street, adjacent to the building. Then I sat in perfect silence, staring at the structure. I felt a strange sensation, as if at any moment I might see something move inside the building. A figure passing by a window, or a pair of eyes staring back at me from an empty doorway. But there was no movement, no sound. Just an eerie, pervasive silence. Stepping out of my car, I moved stealthily towards the building's entrance. My footfalls were quiet against the ground, my breathing silent and controlled. The odd sensation lingered. It made me feel like I was participating in something I did not understand. I tried to maintain my skepticism for Orwek's testimony, but it was a hard thing to do when everything I encountered served only to validate the outlandish tale he'd told. As I walked through the threshold and into the alleged location of the breathing chamber, the sole of my shoe met with a pane of broken glass that lay on the ground. The ensuing sound made me freeze momentarily. Looking around, I took in my surroundings. The warehouse was in ruins. There were piles of broken concrete and scattered evidence of a fire. It didn't look like a place that would have held a modern art exhibition. There was nothing chic about it. It was just a gritty, burned-out warehouse. Aside from the charred remnants and the scattered detritus, nothing inside suggested the existence of any sort of artistic expression. But then again, people have performed and presented art in all kinds of unusual domains. I thought about Lingua Ignota, the singer who played music, often while smashing light bulbs, in abandoned factories and warehouses around the East Coast. Crowds of people attended her shows, though the venue rarely looked safe to inhabit. Still, it surprised me that the abandoned warehouse in which I stood held no evidence of the art exhibition that had supposedly taken place there just over a week before. I expected to find something, a fresh-looking cigarette butt, some recently discarded beer bottles, or perhaps one of those flyers I'd seen at the bookshop. But all the debris in the place, and there was plenty of it, looked older. Even the dust and dirt looked old, like it had laid there undisturbed for decades. I poked through the ashes from the apparent fire, but nothing of any real consequence could be found there either. I returned to my car feeling frightened and needlessly foolish. When I got home that night, I wanted nothing more than to leave Orwek's story behind. But I knew that if I returned to work the following morning, having found nothing, it wouldn't look good. So I combed through public records yet again. This time, I was trying to find a paper trail that would lead me to the most recent owner of the abandoned warehouse in Melville. As far as I could tell, nobody had owned it since 1978, when the last owner had filed for bankruptcy so it seemed that I had found another dead end. I spent the remainder of the night scouring the internet for mentions of the enigmatic Brother Simon. 
The first mention I could find of him was in an obscure and now defunct journal called The Lexicon of Hysteria. Sources online claim that in the fourth issue of the journal, there was an interview with Brother Simon, and that it was even accompanied by a photograph of the elusive artist. Neither the photo nor the contents of the interview could be found online. But I did find someone that had a copy of the journal for sale. I sent them a payment via PayPal, and they said they would mail the journal to me, but that it could take up to a month to arrive. While I waited for my copy of The Lexicon of Hysteria, Volume 4, I continued to sift through the internet for information on Brother Simon. The only other place I could find mention of him was in the diary of a now-deceased horror author named Sigmund Burroughs. Luckily, the Burroughs diary was available online, so I downloaded a PDF version and began to read through it. Throughout the text, Brother Simon's name is mentioned about a dozen times. Burroughs wrote that over the course of 50 years, he had a handful of run-ins with the man that called himself Brother Simon. He didn't describe Brother Simon's physical appearance in his diary, but Burroughs did note that the man didn't seem to age. Their first meeting had taken place before World War II. Over the 50 years that followed, Brother Simon always looked the same age to Burroughs. The exact nature of their relationship is somewhat vague. Apparently, they spent their time together discussing and critiquing various pieces of art and writing. Some of their meetings were said to have taken place at Burroughs' home in Connecticut. But Burroughs also mentions encounters in France, California, Eastern Canada, and even one in Monte Carlo. After their final meeting in New England, Burroughs appeared to become suspicious and even a little scared of Brother Simon. Burroughs was in his 60s by then, and had grown increasingly distraught over the fact that Brother Simon still seemed not to be aging. He began to do some research to try and uncover Brother Simon's true identity, but he found something else out instead. Burroughs discovered that in every part of the world where Brother Simon had lived, there had been a dramatic increase in suicides, and that mental asylums had seen a spike in occupancy. It was hard for him to believe at first, but the deeper he looked into it, the more alarming the data became. Burroughs wrote, England in the 1950s, France in the late 70s, the United States in the mid-80s. In every country, in every city, in every town where this man has lived, a subtle madness, a yearning for death has begun to seep into the population. This passage of Burroughs' diary is made even more ominous by the fact that only a few years later, Burroughs himself would die of an apparent suicide by hanging. As sensational and terrifying as the diary of Sigmund Burroughs is, it still didn't get me any closer to what had happened at the breathing chamber, and whether it had played a role in the death of Melvin Orweck. I knew there was only one way I was going to get an answer to those questions. There were supposedly three other people there with Orweck that night. I knew that unless I could talk to one of them, I'd never get the full picture of what had happened. I went back through the letter he had sent, combed through the internet for potential connections, and contacted all his previous employers. But nowhere could I find any sort of indication as to who Orweck's friends were, much less who had been with him on that night in early October. And that was where the case dried up for me. For the next two weeks, I tried to follow a few other leads, but spent most of my time looking into other cases. 
I was trying to prepare myself to leave the Orwek story behind, to forget all the insanity and return to a world that felt safe to live in. But then I met Diana Lansing. Lansing was a private investigator. I was put in touch with her through one of my friends. I had shared the details of Orwek's story with the friend a week or so before. Later, she had taken a look at a database she had access to. There, she found out that a private investigator was looking into a case that was remarkably similar to Orwek's. Logan and Camilla Friedkin were a young, newly married couple that lived in Queens. Mr. and Mrs. Friedkin lived a quiet, mostly private life. On the 12th of October, seemingly without reason, Logan Friedkin woke up in the morning, walked out his front door, and stepped in front of a moving subway car. He died instantly. Later that day, his wife Camilla was reported missing by her parents. Several days went by, but the police were unable to turn up any reliable leads on the young woman's whereabouts. Her parents grew frustrated and decided to seek outside help. They hired a private investigator named Diana Lansing to help find their daughter. Lansing was given access to the couple's house. She was able to gather that five days before Logan committed suicide and Camilla went missing, the couple had gone with two of their friends to an obscure art show in Long Island. Lansing wasn't convinced that the art show had anything to do with Logan's suicide or Camilla's disappearance, but she still had a funny feeling about it, something she couldn't put her finger on. Especially odd was the fact that another one of the art show's attendees, one Melvin Orweck, had also died in the days following the show. Lansing followed whatever leads she could find, but was still unable to locate Camilla. So she shared some of the details of Camilla's case with an online database, hoping somebody would be able to locate a witness. When my friend came across Lansing's material online, she immediately put me in touch with her. I met Lansing in New Jersey the following day. She was a short woman with long, straight hair that was graying in streaks. Her eyes were narrow and her chin was bony and stiff. She looked like someone who was perpetually running out of patience. We sat in her car in an empty Hoboken parking lot to discuss the cases and their apparent connection. The first thing she asked me was how I'd gotten involved. I told her about the letter Orwick had written. She seemed at first surprised and then disturbed. Do you know who the fourth is? I asked her. The fourth what? She said. The fourth attendee of the art show. The last person that went with Orwek and the Friedkins to the breathing chamber. Oh, she said. Yeah. He's a guy named Victor Corson. I tried calling him, even stopped by his house a few times, but I haven't been able to get a hold of him. He's got to hold the key to all of this, I said. I don't know. Lansing said, evidently exhausted. I don't know what went on that night, but I'd certainly like to talk to Mr. Corson. What do you know about the Friedkins? I asked. Did they leave behind any evidence? Anything that would explain what happened? Nothing will explain what happened, Lansing said, and then got suddenly quiet, like she was ashamed to admit such a thing, ashamed at her inability to find a reasonable explanation for the events. But, yeah, she went on, there was some stuff. Most of it was left by Mr. Friedkin, before he went down to the Queensbridge station, 
and splattered himself across the windshield of a train. He was apparently quite the writer, too. From what I could tell, going through his things, he had journaled sporadically throughout his adult life. A lot of his writing was a little bit weird, but the stuff he wrote after October 7th was... Lansing fell silent and shook her head. It was just bizarre. What did it say? I asked. Lansing thought for a moment. What didn't it say? She muttered. It was insane. One thing that came up repeatedly was Mr. Friedkin's belief that he was on display, as he put it. He claimed to see eyes looking back at him from the other side of windows and mirrors. He said there were figures inside picture frames that appeared to be studying him. Everywhere he went, he had a vague suspicion that he was being watched. Sometimes he would hear whispers and bits of conversation in which unseen entities seemed to be discussing him and commenting on his actions. I sat in silence, terrified but trying not to show it. It seemed like Orwek wasn't the only one to be psychologically affected by what he'd seen at the breathing chamber. Lansing and I talked, exchanging notes and discussing theories. The small-statured private investigator seemed so stoic and rugged to me. I was surprised that she would entrust the details of her investigation to me, of all people. But I also got the feeling that she would take all the help she could get. She seemed perplexed by the alleged events. She was at times rendered speechless when we were discussing them. Before we departed, I convinced her to give me the address and phone number of Victor Corsan, the fourth attendee of the exhibition. Corsan, she said, had not been officially declared a missing person, but he hadn't been seen by any reliable witnesses in the past week either. She admitted that she hadn't devoted much of her time to looking for Corsan. My main objective is finding Camilla, she said matter-of-factly. And then she shook my hand stiffly and asked me to get out of her car. Later that night, I would look back on Lansing's words about Logan Friedkin's writing. It struck me how the symptoms he described were similar to those experienced by schizophrenics. Not that I was, or ever would be, in any sort of position to diagnose anything like that. But I had heard that feeling like unseen figures were scrutinizing your actions was a symptom of some types of schizophrenia. I became curious about whether there had ever been a documented case of someone developing schizophrenia after seeing an art exhibition. I couldn't find any such cases, but I did learn about a condition called Stendhal Syndrome. Sufferers of Stendhal Syndrome experience hallucinations, fainting, and palpitations after seeing or experiencing some piece of art or artifact. The most recent account I could find occurred in 2018, at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. A man had suffered a heart attack while viewing Sandro Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. For the next few days, I staked out Victor Curson's second-story apartment. I was still convinced that he held the key to finding out what happened at the breathing chamber. One evening, after sitting in front of his place for nearly 16 hours, I decided I needed a break. I went over to my friend's house in Flatbush, he was nice enough to let me use the shower. I ate and rested for a bit, then two hours later went back to Corsan's. When I arrived, I took a double take at the apartment's living room window. To my disbelief, there was a light on inside. And not just any light, 
but a surprisingly colorful and textured glow. It illuminated the walls, cast weaving shadows across the interior of the space. Keeping an eye on the shifting light, I stepped out of my car and threw my hood over my head. I crept across the street and up the stairwell to Corson's front door. When I arrived, I raised my fist to knock, but something stopped me. The door was already open, just slightly. I looked down at the latch plate and saw that it had been busted out of the doorframe, like the door had been kicked in or pried open with a crowbar. My shaking fingers met the door and I pushed it slowly open. The apartment was small and scarcely decorated, though it was neat. When I stepped into the cramped living room, I saw a lanky man with a shiny bald head sitting on the couch. Victor Corson? I asked. He said nothing, but smiled awkwardly and nodded. You're Victor Corson? I asked again, and again he nodded. Where have you been? I asked. And why did you kick your own door in? He just went on smiling awkwardly alternating between showing his yellowing teeth and hiding them behind cracked lips. What did you see at the breathing chamber? I asked. I saw the exhibition, he said, surprising me slightly. I saw the exhibition, and then I became the exhibition. The statement seemed to amuse him. He let loose a string of screechy laughter. In the dim light of the living room, I couldn't see Corson very clearly. But something about the shape of his face looked odd to me. I studied his features for a moment and realized that it was his eyes. The shape of his eyes looked oddly animal. They didn't quite have the contours of human eyes. They looked almost like the eyes of a fox or a wolf. Slowly, his eyes turned away from me. He tilted his head and lifted his gaze to the ceiling. An access panel had been removed exposing the crawl space or attic that stood atop the apartment. I wouldn't have been able to see much in the cramped little space above the ceiling were it not for the vibrant, pulsating light that shined down from inside. There was something up there, and it was illuminated with properties that I couldn't readily make sense of. Before I had the chance to react, Corson got up and approached the light in the ceiling. What are you doing? I asked, my voice hollow. I took it with me, he said, still smiling. I had to take it with me. Standing below the opening, he reached his arms up towards it. For a moment, his arms seemed to extend in an unnatural way. He grasped the sides of the opening and pulled himself up through it, seeming to do so effortlessly. His body stretched and elongated, and then disappeared into the hole in the ceiling. I began to back away inching towards the broken front door. You've got to come up here, he yelled, rabid with laughter. You really do. You really do. You've really got to come up here. The sound of his voice resonated strangely in my body. He kept calling to me, but I was frozen. I stood there while the light shined down on me. It felt the way I would imagine radiation to feel. It didn't just land on my skin but seemed to penetrate right through me, changing me in some way, trying to show me an alternate world, full of things that I didn't want to see. 
whatever was holding me there, let go for the briefest second. I sprang, flying through the door and back out to my car. I drove home with a desperate chill creeping through my body. The following day, I got a call from Diana Lansing. She told me that Victor Corson's body had washed up on the shore of the Hudson. They hadn't determined the cause of death yet, but they guessed that he'd been dead for at least a week. And, she said, barely pausing to catch a breath, it looks like somebody broke into his apartment last night. The cops found the door kicked in. Said it didn't look like any of his things were missing, though. I was stunned into silence. I didn't have the nerve to tell her that I'd been at the apartment, had spoken to the intruder. Later, when a photo of Victor Corson was given to the media, I wasn't surprised to find that, in reality, he looked nothing like the man I'd seen in his apartment. I left everything involving the breathing chamber and Brother Simon behind. I never reported back to my job at the ruse, never even sent them a letter of resignation. I just disappeared, packed my things, and moved to central Idaho. A few days before I left, a package was delivered to my house. It contained the fourth volume of the Lexicon of Hysteria. It was the journal I'd bought that contained a photograph of Brother Simon. Two years would go by before I could even look at the journal. And even when I did finally look at it, I didn't really need to. I didn't need to see the grainy, black-and-white photo on page 217 to know that Brother Simon was a tall, bald man with the uncanny eyes of a fox. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoy it, I'd like to remind you that I have a full-length cosmic horror audiobook available on my Patreon. It's called Solace, and it tells the story of a journalist who becomes obsessed with a series of strange disappearances. It's over eight hours long, and it's broken up into five parts. It has a private RSS feed, so you can listen to it on the Apple Podcast app or whatever other podcasting app you like. Or, of course, you can listen to it on the Patreon mobile app or desktop or whatever. And you can get it for just three bucks. Even if you just subscribe for a month, listen to it, and then go back to being a free listener, that's totally cool with me. And you get a $3 audiobook out of it, which is a pretty good deal. You can listen to the first 30 minutes of it in the episode titled Solace. There's a link in the show notes, as well as in the bio of my show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. As always, thank you for listening. And please be careful of that gaunt figure that's looming in the corner of your basement. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.